Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your guide today as we talk about the new Steven Spielberg film, The Fablemans. Previously, director Spielberg has made many films that feel very personal to his own story, but they're always metaphorical. With this film, it cuts a lot closer to the bone and feels parallel to the real backstory behind the man, his family, and his storied career as a filmmaker. It follows the lightly fictitious Fableman's family as their kids go from small children to their college years and move fully across the country from New Jersey to Arizona to California. To tell us about their work on the film, we have two guests that essentially need no introduction. Longtime collaborators with Steven Spielberg and with each other, we are joined by Gary Rydstrom, who is a supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer. Gary was previously on Tonebenders in episode 189. It's good to talk to you again, Gary. Welcome back on the show. Nice to be back. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, we also have Andy Nelson, who we've been trying to get on the show for a very long time. Uh, it's great to have you on, Andy. Uh, I want to talk to you about this film. Welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you two have worked on a lot of films together. Which one was the first film you worked together on? What was the first film we worked on, Andy? I The first film, I think, was Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, Probably. Yeah, because I'd worked on some Spielberg films in, in various capacities before then Andy'd worked on even more. But yeah, Private Ryan, which we mixed in LA, that was the first. I think it was Private Ryan because when, when we first met, I was in the in the big old Toddy O room in Hollywood, mm. which was we used to call it Buzz's Barn because it was Buzz Knudsen's room, which where by the way he did mix ET and Close Encounters. Um, and uh you had prepared all the sound effects work up at Skywalker. I believe, for, for, for Private Ryan. When you brought it down, it was a bit horrifying for you to see that room, which was, wasn't was a very great acoustic room. It was, a, it was a big echoey room. And I think you were nervous having prepared all this intricate work up north. So the decision was made to move it over to Lantana, which was also a Toddio facility, but it was a, previously that was Skywalker South, of course. So it was a much tighter room acoustically and matched your rooms up at the ranch. And I think that's how we first worked together. Yeah, because I, you know, Stephen is a, a likes things that he's comfortable with, and he gets uh, sentimental. I think that room mm. was something that he had fond memories of. Um, I'm superstitious about it. And they brought me down, yeah, because we had already we, we pre-mixed the sound effects up at Skywalk, and they brought me down to check out the room. And <laughs> so I looked at it and I listened to it. And I I know great movies have been mixed in there, but <laughs> I uh, I put in my two cents, which is let's go somewhere else because this movie requires something a little more, uh, uh, just a li- little bit more up to date. Yeah, I and 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 Stephen was fine with it because it, because as I say, we, we we moved across town. Essentially, we stayed. In fact, I seem to remember him at the time being quite excited because it was even closer to his home. <laughs> so uh, he was very happy to move over to there, and as was I. So it, it worked out great. But that was the first time, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, a fun mix to do. It, was, it actually made me think of in, in Fablemans. It, it, we're talking about that. There's a scene in Fablemans where young Sammy Fableman makes his first war movie, and I couldn't help but think of Private Ryan when you know we were doing kind of the cheesy sounds for the Fablemans. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, movie. I think I, I would. I half of me wanted to sneak in a couple actual Private Ryan sound effects in there, but that would have been wrong. Oh, I don't know. You could have got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fun. Well, 
thank you for the uh, good transition into the Fablemans. Uh, I wanted <laughs> to uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, talk about the opening scene. Uh, the film starts with our young hero uh, Sammy Fableman when he's maybe I'm not sure exactly how old he's supposed to be somewhere in the eight to ten year old range. Uh, he's attending his first film at a cinema, and it's a wonderful scene. And just before we dig into it, I wanted to tell you about a recent experience I had along these lines. I have a six year old daughter, and last month I took her to her first theatrical film. And uh, she got in the seat, and she weighs so little that the seat was folding up on her. I had to keep one leg on the seat so she wouldn't get uh, sandwiched by it. Uh, And then once the Uh lights dimmed and the trailer started, she looked at me and she said, Dad, it's just too big. We have to go. Like, she couldn't, like, understand how big the screen was. So I quickly calmed her down and convinced her to stay. And she was just so in awe of the entire experience. She doesn't have, like, the learned experience of how to watch a movie. So her eyes would scan the entire screen, like, every corner. She didn't, like, know where to, like, the cinema language of where to watch yet. And I found myself watching her instead of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then in this movie, that's actually what happens in the film. We spend a lot of his first experience in the cinema watching Sammy's face watch the film. And so that means sound has to carry a large role because the film is taking place off screen. So, Gary, maybe if you could start, how did, how did you tackle that scene? Well, the, the, the importance for that was to experience it like Sammy does, which is that overwhelming thing you just talked about for a kid that age. First movie and Steven's first movie, I think, was Greatest Show on Earth which is a big movie to see when you're that age. So what I had to do was uh, we, we, we sweetened the, the soundtrack of the original movie because it had to be big to make an impression on Sammy so that it you know something he tried to work out his fear his, uh, at that moment by you know, making his toy train movie later on. So it had to be big. So despite feeling like I shouldn't mess with the classic, we, we sweetened uh, uh, all the sound effects and made the train crash a little bit bigger and with a little more subwoofer than they had in 1952 or whatever it was. <laughs> so yeah, it was all about what you described, how, using the sound of that movie to feel like, what does what is this first experience sound like feel like to a kid that age yeah i think i think um it's interesting you say that because i think gary you 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 brought it in initially with a little bit of enhancement uh and, and as you said you 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 were cautious about it yeah and it was actually Stephen that said oh i think we should beef it up even more you know so he kind of gave you license because i agree with you initially we were both a little anxious about do we mess with this or do we just let it be but um he was all all about that because because as you said it was really going to create something that was more in sammy's mind than the reality of this there's a scene that it's actually a great use of sound that steven's very good at building that into his movies nothing to do with Mm. us but he builds it in so sammy imagines the sound of a toy train as a real train yeah. Um, I, of course, think it's a great idea because it saves a lot of money. No visual effects <laughs> needed. The soundtrack is doing all the work, right? It's kind of getting inside Sammy's brain. But that real train moment only really works because we were given permission, which I was waiting for, like a good soldier, to uh, to enhance the original movie. Andy, do you remember what the first film you saw in a theater was? Yes. Ironically, wait for this, West Side Story. Ah, <laughs> and I told and I told Stephen that when we worked on it a couple of years ago now, and um, I remember being pretty over, overwhelmed by it. I didn't fully understand it. I don't remember exactly what age I was. Probably about nine. Um, but I just loved the spectacle of it. But it's interesting you talk about your daughter because my grandson won't go to the movies 
Yeah, he's he's eight because he is frightened of oddly enough not the picture but the sound, and I, I have makes me feel guilty every time he's worried about something might be too loud. Um, uh, trying to explain that it wasn't my fault, <laughs> but um, so uh, but, but yeah, I uh, no West Side Story was my first experience, so it was fun to be able to work on that in in the last year or two. Wow, Gary, do you remember what the first film you saw in a theater was? My first one was Mary Poppins. So a little bit different, uh, a musical though. And I, I remember falling desperately in love with Julie Andrews. That was my memory. <laughs> I wanted I wanted a nanny like that. My first film was E.T. And uh, oh. I, remember, I remember being just so overwhelmed with emotions. And when we left the theater in the parking lot, there was a full moon that day just by coincidence. And I remember staring at the parking lot and that's when like I broke. I just started bawling in my uh in the parking lot like just so full of emotions and uh so upset and ever and happy and joyful and that that movie really had a big effect on me and it was seeing the real moon and you know obviously the moon plays a role in that film as well um so uh sorry go ahead andy no no i was just i was just enjoying all our first movie experiences <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Gary, you slightly mentioned it. Uh, well, you did mention it. The second scene in the film is when, uh, our Sammy decides that he's going to make his own movie with the family camera and, uh, he takes the toy trains. I'm just going to set this up a little bit so you can, uh, kind of elaborate. He sets up his toy trains and what we see uh, while watching the film is just toy trains moving around, but it's how we transition into Sammy's head is all through sound, as you mentioned earlier. But the way that that is built is we see toy trains, but we hear full-size trains. We see plastic trains smacking into each other, but we hear big train crashes. And that is kind of a pivotal moment in the movie that is completely carried by sound, and that's the only way into our main character's brain. And you mentioned that that was kind of built by Stephen, but uh, how did you two take what his ideas were and kind of expand on them? Yeah, well, I, I mean, he. I remember when we were working on West Side Story, he talked about Fablemans to us when Andy and I were mixing. He talked about that scene and the idea of getting inside Sammy's head, sort of the the cinematic imagination and how to represent that. Yeah. Um, so it got me excited even before I'd seen anything from Fablemans because I knew he was going that direction. You know, it's it's also great because it's set up, which I think is true in Stephen's case, that the the camera, you know, getting involved in film from the beginning was a way to work through fears, work through anxiety about something that was scary to him initially. So, you know, the two there's two train moments where we start out the sound as just the normal Lionel standard gauge train stuff with those great, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the rheostat sound that that hum the rheostat makes and the clacking on the tracks. And I had the fake whistle from a Lionel train set, which is really fun to find all that stuff. And then we morph it into a, a real train. And the first time it turns into a big train is kind of cool. The second time he's actually setting up the crash and, uh, you know, sort of trying to recreate the greatest show on earth crash. So, yeah, now we just see toy trains crashing and it turns into a massive crash and we cut to the parents upstairs in bed that I don't know what they've heard. They've heard all the crashing, the real crashing downstairs and kind of go to check on them. But I loved the, this, an important moment for this young, this character, the, the moment where they say the possibility of cinema, right. And it's yeah. all in the sound. It's such a great use of sound to imagine yeah. a kid realizing the potential of what he was getting into. 
Yeah, it was. I think it was almost overwhelming for Sammy. That's the impression because actually, what happened when he woke the parents up is remember he sort of backed into a shelf in mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the downstairs in the garage or wherever um, because he was sort of overwhelmed by what he was experiencing in in his mind, and that's what sort of woke them up as that crash. But yeah, I think it was. I mean, you played around with that transition a lot, Gary, because, you know, it was where do you do it? It's what, at what point do you make that transition? And you'd try something and Stephen would come up with a, a different spot and then we'd in, you'd enhance it with a... I remember at one point you created it with the whistle getting bigger and pitching it up so that it, it became more and more intense as it approached him. Right. And every time we did something like that, Stephen got more and more excited by it. Yeah, when that transition happens is is important because you're you're counting on something that's not really visually telling you when that transition is. So you can choose when it is, and yeah, right. Transitioning to, I remember he he always wanted. It's hard to make a steam whistle, which is was what it turned into, really beefy because yeah. steam whistles are high pitched. So you know, and one of my struggles was to make that as contrasted as possible from the Lionel toy whistle. The other little. Easter egg, though. Andy, I think I remember, didn't we put in a line of dialogue from the original Greatest Show on Earth for when the little Noah character yeah. gets crashed? Yeah, but it came, it, it didn't stay in, though. Did it, it not it, stay it, in? No, it, it decided to take that out in the end. Um, because I think it just broke the... It was, If you remember, when we put it in, it was hard to actually understand it. It was already very muffled in the original track. And um, yeah. we tried it, and uh, it lived in for a while. And then I think towards the end, if I remember, he... He decided that it probably wasn't necessary because also we had to give away from the approach of the train to make it clearer. Right. And it just took away from the advance of the train. So I think right. we just ended up. That's an Easter egg that's not in there. I take it back. <laughs> but again, I, you know, I, I, you know, I try to pay attention to the dialogue in the mix sometimes. Maybe you know. <laughs> uh, I nudge him every now and then. How do you beef up a steam whistle, Gary? You know, actually, the trick to making the steam whistle interesting was to Doppler it. So, you know, finding a, a beefy one, but then it uh, it was on the first train transition, and the train actually heads towards Sammy, and then takes a quick left turn, left bank before hitting Sammy's. You know, would hit his face if it was a real turn. <laughs> The trick was the Doppler it, so it, it feels like it's traveling over a, lo- a, lo- a large space by into the next scene. Mm-hmm. Cool. So there's a lot of fun, funny sound moments in this film uh, from major kind of plot points of the nails on the piano. Uh, to also just tiny moments. There's a moment that got the theater I was in laughing very hard, and uh, I'm not even sure like how you pulled this off the 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 plot point is that uh the sammy's mother has a mother-in-law that does not approve of her and at one point the mother-in-law walks into the kitchen and we see a long shot of her standing a few feet from the oven and just in that awkward silence you start hearing the food sizzling over and it's just hilarious for some reason it was a really funny moment that kind of 
broke the tension and also kind of explained the tension. Was Where do you come up with the ideas for these kind of little sounds to add flavor like that? I, if I remember right, that was it. We have a sort of a great creaky old oven door and then we had a steamy kind of sound when she opens the oven. I think Andy, when I remember mixing it, Andy said, you should put a sizzle sound for the... Uh, for what's on top of the stove, so I'll uh, credit Andy for that. We just it just made sense to draw her over to the to the stovetop. Um, yeah, she was a funny funny character. I, I think that I think the humor though also is is in the pause and the looks. Mm-hmm. You know that that's where you start to laugh. And then the other thing you did, Gary, which actually enhanced it a lot. And I think Stephen had urged you, and 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 you came up with a great was actually increasing the sound of her feet as she walked across to the oven. This is brisket. Which I know might sound silly, but it actually, it works for her. She starts with that look of disapproval and then she walks across to it. And um, it was a funny moment. Yeah. And I think it was all enhanced by just heightening all those sounds a bit. And and, and on top of which, the shoes themselves are those kind of serious, heavy shoes that are not at all uh, light. So they could clop. Mm -hmm. So it gave her a... Gave her a you know good four, five, six good clops before she got to the thing. But yeah, I love the movie. I overall has got a lot of funny moments, which it's got a lot of emotional moments, a lot of sad moments, and a lot of amazing moments. But it's also very funny. One, I'll I'll take credit for a really tiny sound that always made me laugh, and it actually made Stephen laugh. So I bring it up is the um, Sammy's having his little uh, time in the in the bedroom with his girlfriend. And she's getting him to cross himself like a good Catholic. And so we put in real just and Sammy's crossing himself is a little clumsy because he's not he's not used to it. So the, the things you can do with Foley or tiny sound effects to enhance a moment are are this movie's full of them. It's it's always fun for us. Mm-hmm. How did you tackle the na- the there's a scene where uh, the mother is playing piano for the family, and but she has very long nails. And you can hear the piano, but you can also hear just the clackety clack, clack, clack of her nails hitting the piano keys. Was that tackled by Foley or how did you go about that? We tackled it a couple different ways. Actually, what a lot of what's in there was cut uh, material that the picture department cut when they, they created the scene. And so we, you know, a lot of times they'll do a pass at something. We'll do a pass in Foley. And what they did was was funny. It was really funny. So um, they got a sound effect and they cut it in. But it, what makes it work, again, it's what Spielberg is very good at is, is building moments in a movie that make use of sound to tell a story point. And uh, I don't know if that's based on his mother. I don't remember if you heard of his mother making clicky sounds when she played the piano. But... <laughs> It's a it's a great story point built into the soundtrack of the movie. Funny thing that I remember about that also is that sometimes with Foley, you articulate things uh, so that they're all sort of correct visually, um, and then you know they suggest you know why don't you try what we had in, in the Avid track because they'd spent some and of course the sound in there is not going to have any of that articulation, and yet it sort of works because it just plays as a flat across sound effect which i think in this instance worked better because of that it was it was less articulate but more funny in a in a weird way so yeah i hope the foley people don't listen to this but because their foley was they spent a lot of time performing 
mm. you know, probably I have, might have even learned the piece of music so that it, it sung perfectly to every every finger tap along the piano because it's shot pretty close. You can see it close. Yeah. The picture department version of it was a little bit a little bit sloppier in terms of sync, but funnier. So another lesson learned. <laughs> so uh, speaking of the piano and music, Andy, uh, I, I assume you handled the the music mix on this. That's correct, right? I did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, I guess, the second to last John Williams score we're going to get. Uh, that's been announced, I guess. Uh, I, you know what? I don't believe everything you hear. <laughs> I mean, okay, good, good inside track there. Okay, John loves writing music, so I look. I think he's definitely at a point where he's he's going to be, you know, extraordinarily um, careful about whatever he chooses. But you know, with Stephen, their relationship. Who knows? It, 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 uh, anything's possible. But yes, it's certainly supposedly one of his last scores. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, what it's like getting the uh, tracks from him and putting them up on the faders the first time? Yeah, well, I've done it for, for a lot, lot of times now with him. And uh, he he's one of the most collaborative people, um, apart from being an extraordinarily lovely man and, and you know, literally the maestro. He... Um, because of his relationship with Stephen, he attends the mix on many occasions, which is, you know, it's just wonderful to have him in the room. Um, so that's always a treat. The tracks themselves, Sean Murphy is usually the scoring mixer who works with him. And um, the thing about John is that for him, the music recording is all about performance. It's all based on performance. So all the editing that he does after recording is about picking the best bar of within the music that the orchestra is playing the best on and and constructing it like that so because he he listens as the conductor essentially because he is the conductor and so therefore i get it as a full-blown piece of orchestral music very little separation there obviously if there's any solo instruments they might be separate but in general it's it's a performance piece um and over the years, working with Sean, um, his his mixes are phenomenal to work with, and he understands the need that I have. Sometimes I'll have some a little bit of reverb separate so that I can control it in some of the more actiony pieces. But in a film like Fablemans, where there's you know, there was no no reason to have that, it was just literally like having the orchestra sitting in front of you. So. Um, I I love it, you know. I mean, I just sort of I just go with it because I'm I'm all about that feeling of performance. So um, now, in this instance, you've got two different things at work. You've got the actual score itself, fairly minimal in this film, um, and beautifully understated. I think it really worked, but so well emotionally. And then you've got the pieces that were all pre-record pieces, of course, that the mother's playing, and um, they were also recorded on a scoring stage. But with a separate set of microphones, uh, quite a few different microphones, so that I could choose, uh, along with uh, Romero Belgart, who is the music editor for, for John, um, we could choose um, mics that we wanted to use so that it would simulate the living room versus a concert hall, obviously. But we would have the ability to mix into some wider mics if we were going to use it as a piece of score, because um, during the sequence where... Um, Sammy's cutting the movie together from the camping trip. 
the she is downstairs playing and essentially rehearsing and but the music itself is becoming much more score like because of the nature of the of the scene so i was able to just very carefully try and open the mics out slightly so that you know you didn't just feel you were trapped in the sort of living room sound but it became all enveloping you know so um so that, that was the that was the sort of challenge and the goal on this film but in general working with john's music um it's always a dream and uh i mean we've done it many times gary haven't we where he's in the room and see there's me gary Stephen, and john sitting in a row and it's like you have to pinch yourself sometimes because it doesn't get much better than that yeah i know i it's one of them, the great it's, it doesn't get much better than we were uh they have john you know they have Stephen there but they have Stephen and john and sometimes mike khan and just kind of uh legends um what what's interesting about when John does visit the stage, he seems very generous and uh, at times he'll compose or, or record options for moments in the movie. And there are a couple of times in Fablements where he had a couple of different options. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really amazing, like in the camp, the campsite scene. And uh, we would listen to those and listen to John and Stephen and we would chime in about one versus the other and what worked better. So you feel very as with Stephen, you feel very part of the process and uh, and to have be part of the process with John is even better. Yeah, he likes to make those choices up on the stage with us, which is what's wonderful. I mean, I, I don't you remember on Lincoln, Gary, the end of Lincoln, the walk away. There were whole cues that were done in three different versions, one trump trumpet, one piano only, one, low, you know, low strings of orchestra. And we would all just literally sit there auditioning which one was the most effective at any one moment. And John... Yeah, he he likes to give options like that, and uh, it's great to be part of that process. With with all those many music passes for Lincoln walking down the hallway, I got to really perfect my Foley pass. I think it's <laughs> I think that made the moment, but it's maybe it's just me. <laughs> I think you're right, <laughs> uh, Gary. Speaking of uh, mixing sound effects and Foley, uh, I want to ask you a bit about. There's a scene in the film where uh, there's a tornado. And the mother grabs the kids, jumps in the car, and starts chasing the tornado. Now, I would assume the sound supervisor in you is going, yeah, I can get crazy with winds, building up humongous winds. And then the mixer in you gets on the stage, and there aren't really very loud winds in that scene. Uh, do you want to talk about how you came to uh, pulling... I, I, maybe you never cut huge winds to begin with. I don't know. Maybe talk about your process to get to where you ended up. Uh, you know, you, you, we certainly did cut more winds, and I think they're in there. The, the purpose of the scene is that she's heading towards the danger, right? So if you start the scene out with too much Wizard of Oz tornado winds, then there's nothing for her to go to. So we, we actually pulled back a little bit, um, despite visually it looking very windy, so that when she drove... She was going into the eye of the storm, literally, and going into danger, which was, you know, why she was doing, why the scene was there. And by that point, actually, the more interesting sounds often happens in natural disaster kind of movies. I remember doing, when I did Backdraft, I thought the sound of the fire was less interesting than the effects of the fire. And then the tornado scene here is a brief scene, but the, the effect of the tornado, the power line, you know, zapping and falling over and... The shopping carts rolling by, which is a very Spielbergian visual. Those are more important than the wind. 
Um, so yeah, we like a lot of things in sound, you prepare it, but in the in focusing the the purpose of the sound for the scene, wind became less important than those kind of things. Yeah, I think also, don't you think, Gary, that you know, listening to Stephen when we were doing that and him talking about how he wanted the scene, because he was also paring it down as well. I think it was because the whole scene was really a metaphor for what he felt was going on inside his mom's head, you know, and 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 her mm-hmm. knowing she had to do something. She 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 needed she you know she clearly wanted a her life to change in some ways. And I think this was kind of a way of, rather than it becoming a literal sequence, I think it was, because Stephen did have us pare it down pretty severely at times. And I think it was because he was trying to say, you know, it, it can't be a full on sequence of, 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 of effects when she's, like you said, she's got to approach this and drive into it, which is really her driving into her own uh, uh, sort of anxiety and, and, pain that she she was in at the time to 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 want to do that so i i feel in some ways it wasn't so cinematic as it was internal i don't know if you agree with that yeah and it's very important what she says and she repeats repeats her last line over and over again so that's what lets us into her head and then makes the transition to when they move which is what you know she didn't want to do right right yeah Exactly. So uh, it's not often that we get to have uh, both ends of the mixing desk on a Tonebenders episode at the same time. So uh, a lot of people uh, aren't working on films big enough that we, they get to have a two-person mix desk. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us what the day, how the day proceeds with uh, each of you at the board. Uh, you come in and you're going to start a new reel. What, what, what happens first? Well, I'll jump in first here because I think I should explain um, my process, which is nowadays a little bit different, perhaps than um, than what a lot of mixers do. I, I still operate on a, a, a Neve DFC mixing console, and, and don't operate Pro Tools. As in, I literally don't operate Pro Tools. I, I don't. I've never turned a Pro Tools on, and I know that sounds strange, but. I, I truly believe that, you know, I've been doing this for, for a long time now and I I feel that all the information I need is up in front of me on the movie screen and that I have very good people working with me generally, you know, really top-notch uh, dialogue people like Brian Chumney on, on these movies with, with Gary and um, uh, they're, they're a genius at doing their work and I can concentrate on, on doing mine, which is literally operating faders and... Um, so, so I'm telling you this because I know this is is sort of going against the norm, but um, for me, it's it's still a performance. You know, I tr- I treat the faders like doing a performance, and each time it's going to be slightly different because it's all about how you feel at any moment. You know, I do long runs where I'll often go through a complete reel with music without stopping. And because I just want to get a feel for the shape of the reel and the scenes in general. And um, so I generally put a dialogue pass down first, do a music pass to that. And I don't get into very much detail then because it's it's much better than for Gary to jump in, get his pass going. And then it's when we work together from that point forward. So it's kind of it's kind of almost like a layering process just to 
reveal, you know, if we all, I, I'm, I don't like the idea of everybody jumping in at the same time at the beginning, because I find that I'm never quite sure if I'm hearing my stuff or if I'm hearing some effects that I think might be in the dialogue and vice versa, you know. So I think it's a good way to just be very clear about what each each area is contributing to the mix. So um, so that's kind of the way that, that that I work initially. And in essence, you know, I've, I get my kind of pass at that because the when we pre-mix the sound effects and, you know, we have everything else in context, that's kind of my putting everything in place and getting ready to go. And then I... I, um, Andy will, will do a long run and learn the, the rhythm of the music and the dialogue together and how that works. And then I can start to, you know, fit into that. But like Andy, I think maybe, maybe this isn't more common these days, but we like working on the DFC and we like working in, in long stretches. So you don't lose sight of the context of a scene or a reel or the movie. If uh, the, the technology these days allows people to kind of micromix, you know, sort of work in, in three second sections and, and, and you build those three second sections up and it sounds like a, a, a train wreck. Um, so uh, as, as much as possible, it's, Andy and I are a, a nice team because we both like to uh, work in, in long stretches and kind of feel it. Um, and then you can always go back and make little adjustments and things, but oh, yeah. if you, if you, and when I, the very first time I ever mixed, which was in film school, but we weren't allowed, you couldn't stop. You couldn't go back. You couldn't punch in. And I feel lucky to have at least started in with the limitation of that, because it turns out the limitation is actually a benefit. Very much so for storytelling. And as you said, quite rightly, you can always go back and put the detail in. But if you start with the detail, you'll lose the big picture completely. And I think it's so important to establish the tone and feel and then you can go back and work a scene forever if, if you want to keep to put all that detail work in and all the sharp corners and things but if you do it the other way around i don't think you get quite the same feel to the to the scenes in my opinion yeah yeah and does steven sit back and wait for you to say to take a look at this or is he there the whole time as you're working it out he's he's not there the whole time we we he he's one of the great strengths he has is he's really good at also watching in long stretches and not getting down not wanting to work on the details his job as a director is to be as objective and, and have the big picture in mind even more than we can so um and he'll get into the weeds but same direction we do which you start with the bigger picture and you yeah. you can start thinking details further on but he likes to get to react to the whole thing so we, we will often play full reels for him and, and get his notes and, and experiences that way so which is i think the only way to work yeah he's kind of laser sharp as well um i've told this to many people who've asked me what it's like to work with him i find that Working with him is incredibly satisfying because what he tends to do is he has this laser sharp approach where if something's not working, he'll go straight to it and we'll have to all figure it out. But if it is working, he doesn't belabor it. We move on, you know. And I mean, it, it, I mean, I can't tell you how many times somebody will say to me, "Oh, I love that. That's a great scene." Okay, let's start working on it. And it's like, well. Uh, I thought you loved it. So <laughs> why how are we going to spend the rest of the day now unpicking it, which does happen. And then sometimes, you know, you, you, you sort of 
go down the wrong path. So Stephen is never like that. He, he, he you know, I've, we've done long pieces together, Gary, where he's just gone, great. I love it because he's reacting like an audience and he'll cry and he'll laugh. And um, it's as, as if he's seeing it for the first time. And uh, uh, it's from a director point of view, it doesn't get any better than that. It's wonderful. Yeah. And plus he's, he's both honest about what isn't working and what he doesn't like. And he's joyful about the stuff that is working and, and then is connecting for him. So you get, mm. you get, um, you know when it's working because he responds to that as positively as he responds negatively to something that isn't. So, um, yes. and, and this movie, which, you know, I think other people worked on it, talked about, but it was, it was an emotional movie for him more so than anything else he's worked on. So we got to sort of be part of that and just watch how meaningful it was to him and how emotional certain scenes uh, were for him. There's the scene that Andy talked about with, Sammy discovering a secret about his family by, you know, editing his eight millimeter movie on his Mansfield editor uh, while the his mom's playing the piano upstairs was that scene happened to end at the end of a reel anyway. So we would play that reel back for Stephen get the end of that scene. And it was very, you know, you could tell it was brought back memories and it was very powerful for him to, yeah. to watch it. And, and I admire filmmakers who can, be emotional about their own work, you know? Mm. Yeah. And like I said, I don't think we really touched that scene much when we presented it like that because it did have that effect on him. And um, th that's the that's the dream of uh, any director is to, is to know when something's working and allow it to work. And he's a master at that. Yeah. Well, that's another scene that has, uh, like we spoke about earlier, uh, where a lot of that is us seeing him watching and discovering. There's like a big chunk of that is just his face silently reacting to what he's discovering. And uh, so the sound of the moviola being fast forwarded and rewinding and the music, which I, that's a piano piece in that one, right? That's not a uh, score. Correct. It's a bar. Yeah, not, not score. It's a, it's a really moving scene that uh, is pulled off really brilliantly. Congratulations on pulling it off. I, 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 I think it's the scene I spent the most time doing detailed editing on because the the editor and the sort of the reels and, and moving back and forth and then you know zeroing in on you know going forwards backwards down frame by frame there's detailed editing which is fun editing right it was it was but and the sound, the plasticky, chintzy sound of this editor and the splicer and the crinkle of the of the eight millimeter film and all that kind of stuff. Uh, to, to me, to be all sort of film school about it, art school about it, it represented the mechanical, the science part of filmmaking. And then the piano that we're hearing the whole time represented the art. And the movie in some ways is balancing his mother and father as kind of an artistic influence and a science influence. And those two come together in this scene, which has all sorts of other meanings to it. But that combination of the mechanical, physical sound of how you edited eight millimeter movies all those many years ago with the beautiful, beautifully played, beautifully mixed piano piece that goes over. So you have these two levels of sound that are that are thematic as well as, you know, emotionally interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah. No, I was just thinking that as you were talking about it, Gary, I, I agree with you. It had that, uh, you know, the two, the two theme, the two things running parallel all the time, and and that's exactly what the story is: sort of art and art and uh, science almost. And um, and I was thinking as I was watching it because I used to have an eight millimeter camera, like a lot of people my age, you know, when we were young, and and I could almost smell the, the cement on the joiner when Gary put all those sounds in because they were so familiar to me from all those years back. Um, I, I I loved it. I thought that was so fascinating. And that was a wordless scene, by the way. I don't think there was any dialogue for seven minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, it brought back memories to me too because I, I also grew up shooting my own 8mm films and cutting them and and you know splicers and and uh, the sound of the splices going through projectors when you showed it to your family and yeah it was uh, all kind of stuff i enjoyed recreating because i remembered it so well myself did you manage to dig up any old moviolas or anything like that like, did you do any recording in the machines we got uh well it, um we i went to ebay <laughs> Good old eBay, and I got the exact same editing machine that Sammy uses, and some of the splicers and such. We also had people who work. I don't have any of my old equipment, but we had a lot of people that did have old equipment, old editors, and people like that, projectors and things like that. So we were able to to pull together. The Foley stage did a lot of this work, and so there it was a great great to see all this old equipment on a table in the in the Foley stage that. Uh, you always want to bring younger people by and, and say, look, at, look at what we used to do. This is amazing. Can you believe we had to actually do all this stuff to make films? Um, but yeah, that was, that was one of the, the, um, the real pleasures of this movie is kind of getting nostalgic about the sound of filmmaking. The film, I mean, the big scale, the film's about a character that's discovering filmmaking and the potential and the beauty of it right including showing it to audiences and what their reaction is everything from the camera and the word the camera to the splicing and the mechanical sounds and the splices through the projector and watching the projector in a closet and how that feels to having a full-on screening with people reacting emotionally and uh, as a crowd to what you've done so it it, it uh, the movie that's a big element of the movie is is discovering film discovering how to make films and what they what they can mean to you yeah i think you should ask gary about the cigar oh <laughs> yeah the best sound effect in the movie is the cigar at the end <laughs> I, I i joked with my friend uh, that the, what the lesson i learned from the movie is that old men who swear a lot know a lot about art <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so uh, at the end of the movie there's kind of a surprise cameo and uh do you want to talk about building that scene and the cigar in particular maybe gary oh, I, I remember when when we first saw that last scene in the movie with john ford and we saw that it was played by david lynch that was i hadn't seen that one coming that was <laughs> made us very enthusiastic about the scene he's so good in it but and and Stephen is pulling on memories of that actual moment because he did meet John Ford and he did get that advice about that John Ford tells him in the movie. He also did sit there in his mind, because it's memory, forever letting, you know, watching John Ford light a cigar. So they stretch that moment out, editorially stretched out time-wise, so it goes on forever. And it was, <laughs> Stephen always wanted it to be bigger than life.
They tell me you want to be a picture maker. Picture department cut big flamey sounds. We cut big flamey sounds. <laughs> just you know the sizzle and the flame and the and the you know kind of the sucking on the on the you know the wet sucking of the cigar. It is it is probably the most detailed sound work in the movie is John Ford's lighting a cigar, which I think goes on for I don't know forty two minutes or something like that of lighting a cigar. <laughs> And, and Stephen always wanted it louder. I mean, every time would go through, make it louder. So, but it's a, every time we played the scene. Every, but it's a memory. Said, memories can make it a bit louder. Yeah, memories are. That's what you remember, right? So his memory was how long it took and how loud it was yeah. and how yeah. slurpy and sizzly it was when John Ford lit his cigar. That our job was to put that in the movie. You did it brilliantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats on the whole movie. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm a sucker for anything that's about uh, cinema, and that although that it's about his family first and foremost, it's about people falling in love with cinema, which is something that I can certainly relate to, and I'm sure you both can. So, uh, uh, thank you very much for giving me an amazing time uh, out at the cinema, and uh, congratulations on your work on it. It really worked out fan- fantabulously. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. It was fun. It's fun to see Andy. And, you know, just goes. To- Relive uh, old times. It's good. Yeah. Wow, that was a great talk. That is 42 Oscar nominations worth of knowledge and experience in one Tone Menders episode for you. Damn. Okay, big thanks to Andrew Richards for volunteering to put this episode together. He was able to do it in a super fast turnaround and was a joy to collaborate with. Andrew is a freelance sound designer and location sound recordist currently in Melbourne, Australia, primarily working in commercials and documentaries. He recently visited Los Angeles and was so struck by the experience, he's moving to Vancouver in April. He'd love to meet up with anyone in that area, so don't hesitate to reach out to him on Instagram, at Andrew Collier Richards. For his excellent work, Andrew will be getting a copy of Sonic Springs Sound Effects Library, generously donated by Katrina Amsler. Thanks, Andrew, and thanks, Katrina. My name is Tim Muirhead, and on behalf of Gary Rydstrom and Andy Nelson, Thanks for listening to Tone Benders, and keep an ear out for our upcoming episodes on the art of recording animals and the wonderful new film, Women Talking. Talk to you then. Tone Benders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tone Benders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 